Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. a lot of conversation in our country, in our homes, in our classrooms, in our communities about division, about what divides us, the dividing lines, which side are you on, whose side are you on, which flag do you wave, which sign do you post, questions of division, so much that divides us. So I want to ask this morning, um, what is the ultimate dividing line? I mean, do we recognize that the ultimate dividing line is those who are in Christ in every time and place, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, like, do do we get that that's the fundamental division of humanity, regardless of uh, nation, ethnicity, political cycle, gender, the politics of the day? The ultimate dividing line is Christ, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. As evangelical Christians, that has to be of primary concern to us. Um, it, it, we have to have a primary concern for those who are not, I'll use the term yet, for those who are not yet in Christ. And if I'm going to reach those who are not yet in Christ, then I cannot allow all the other things that divide us to become primary in my relationship with that other person. There's a very interesting op-ed in the New York Times uh, yesterday about um, the real division in America. Now, this is written by two political scientists. So uh, so they are going to see the answer to the question as something different than what I just pointed out. They are not going to say the primary dividing line in America is those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. No, no. But they are also saying that the dividing line is not primarily those who identify as Republican and those who identify as Democrats. They argue that really what divides us is that to which we give our attention. Think about that for just a moment, that there's an attention divide in America. Um, And it's really there are those who spend an inordinate amount of their attention focused on politics and political division, and there are those who focus their attention elsewhere. And so it creates this... Uh, perception that politics is everything because the people, the very small minority of people who are paying a lot of attention to politics have the loudest voices and, frankly, pretty much all the voices in the secular media. And there are morals at play. Uh, It's couched in terms of a real struggle between good and evil, and that then catches the attention of the rest of us. And so we have two angry groups of people bickering over issues that they press forward as paramount in terms of their importance when, in fact, what's really important to most people is uh, the education and welfare of their children, next generation concerns, what I often describe as home economics, what's actually going on 
in the home and in our primary relationships with those closest to us. All right. So um, division and unity, sort of my lead off question of the day. What divides? What unites? Who divides? Who unites? For those of us who are in Christ, ultimately, he is the dividing line of all things and all people. He is also the ultimate one who unifies us. Unity of spirit and bond of peace we enjoy in Christ himself. All right, my first conversation partner this morning is Dr. Walter Strickland, Jr. He is a professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He also serves there in a very unique role, um, encouraging um, diversity and conversations about diversity, uh, not only on the campus, but by extension into the world. He's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Walter Strickland Jr. joins us again today. We have had the pleasure of his company before on the program, but uh, really looking forward to having an ongoing conversation um, with him. Walter, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. It's wonderful to have you. So um, let's revisit um, your latest book, because uh, for those who may have missed our prior conversation, I don't want them to miss uh, God so loved the world. Let's let's talk about um, the love of God extended to more and more people. Why um, why are we at a unique point in time in terms of advancing this uh, this gospel message, the gospel message that God so loved the world, and how is it a blueprint for um, for kingdom diversity today? Yeah, you know, you know, right now there are so many different things that are pressing against us to divide us. And so it's kind of like we're in this unique historical moment in our nation. We have, uh, you know, of course, the biological pandemic, and then people talk about uh, a racial pandemic that's going on, especially with the tragic events of the summer. And then we have, you know, now going into November 3rd, we have the political dynamics that are uh, pressing against us, as you mentioned in the introduction. And so those three things are just looming on the horizon, plus all the other things that seemingly divide us. And I think that what we're doing, and even a lot of the other social pressures, are causing us to identify with things um, that are not primary to who we are as people. And I think what For God to Love the World does, it brings us back to our primary identifying marker, which is being image bearers, but also for those who are in Christ, being children of God. And so I think there's very few things in our culture that are trying to unify, and even those things that are trying to unify are pushing so much on those things that differentiate us that they disallow us to actually come together. Uh, the the image of God, the the fact that we are each and every one an image bearer of the living God, um, is a critical conversation. There are are also, in my observation, places and spaces where that language is co-opted as if it only belongs to um, uh, maybe a pro-life group or messaging. And I do want us to be, I think I want us to find a way to walk carefully when we, um, and I'm not saying that you do this in For God to Love the World, I'm really speaking here to my wider audience who might tend to think that they hold captive that image bearer language, and we don't. Like every human being in every time and place um, regardless of the circumstances of their of their conception or birth, 
is an image bearer of the living God and continues to be so forever and ever, even even if they never live in a restored relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Accurate or inaccurate? That, that's, that's completely accurate. And, and I actually uh, gave two categories there, one as image bearers, and then the second one was the children of God, those who are uh, have that restored relationship with the Lord Jesus uh, or, or with our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus. And so I was really trying to cast the net as broad as all of humanity throughout all of time first and then address those who are specifically uh, find their hope of restoration in Jesus. So that's the dividing line. And I'm so glad that you answered the question that way, because um, that was the question that I was going to ask. I think there are a lot of people, Walter, who think everybody is a child of God. Like how it's to be, you know, it's just mean to suggest otherwise. I mean, isn't everyone a child of God? And it is important for us to find not only um, our theological footing in that conversation, but our conversational footing. Like how do we actually talk with people who would like to believe that everyone is, well, see, this is, I think, part of the challenge. Not everybody will even acknowledge that there's a heaven and a hell. So to say that, you know, everybody's going to heaven, um, everybody's a child of God, and it's mean to suggest otherwise, I think is a primary conversation um, that we are not having in the culture today. Oh, that's for sure. And, And I think one thing that helps me here, which is something that's so basic but it's the biblical story, and being able to uh, tell the biblical story in very bite-sized pieces is helpful. And so, to talk about the fact that there's a there's a God who created everything, and He's just and He's righteous, and we as people that He has created for His glory and to enjoy Him have turned away from Him and His plan and His design, and are walking away from Him and doing what we want to do. Uh, is called sin because we because God has given us a way to live and we've deviated from that. And in order to make that relationship right, we have to have somebody do that for us because we can't do it ourselves, which is why Jesus came. And so those who uh, are finding our hope in restoration, which has a future hope, you know, of tying us back to God, you know, as well as this already hope of uh, this current relationship we have with him, like it's only through Jesus that that's possible. And so we have to begin to be able to at least summarize the biblical story in short form like that in order to begin to describe how this actually works, that there's image bearers, but then there's also image bearers who are now finding their hope in Jesus Christ alone. I just so It's so critically um, important, and I think that your emphasis on each and every one of us finding a level of comfort, really, in telling the basic biblical story— I mean, I call it the basic biblical story. The word basic is probably, um, I mean, I need to be able to tell it in basic ways, but it's just really the most profound story ever told. Um, And the greatest news uh, human beings have ever or will ever receive. Um, And so I appreciate that that is uh, the place to which you return. It also occurs to me that, um, Walter, I hope you don't take offense at this, but like you don't sound like a, a, a highfalutin theology professor, which you are. Um, you sound like a person that uh, understands my need as a regular Christian walking around out here in the world to be able to um, engage with other people, engage them with the gospel, but in a way that is um, at a level that people can hear and receive and understand. And so I just I want to compliment you on that, and I hope you take that as a compliment and not offense that, you know, you don't, you don't sound like you live um, or operate in an ivory tower. Well, I, I really do appreciate that. And it's easy to make hard things sound hard, but it's 
the challenge <laughs> of the theologian to make you know big, massive things like the infinite God very simple. Yeah, so I really appreciate it. Hey, when we come back, um, I'm going to ask you a dad question. I'm talking with Dr. Walter Strickland from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can follow him on Twitter at W underscore Strickland, and we'll be right back. Joining me this morning, Dr. Walter Strickland. You can find him at W underscore Strickland. You can also find him at StricklandInstitute.com, where their aim is to help Christians think biblically about culturally sensitive topics and resource organizations with the knowledge and skill necessary to promote a God-honoring work or school environment. Um, For those of you who are looking for real equipping um, on the things that we talk about every day. Man, this is a this is a great place to check out, strickland-institute.com. Um, Walter, I want to ask you a dad question. Is that okay? That's perfectly fine. So um, tell me, um, because I have read you self-describe as a father of four, and so I'd like for you to tell our audience why that is different than the way we might hear other people um, talk about their kids. Yeah, definitely. So what we always say in our house is that we have three in the house and one with the Lord. So uh, our first daughter was, uh, she was stillborn. And essentially at 18 weeks, we found, we were going to go find out the gender of our baby uh, to find out if, it was a boy, if the child was a boy or a girl. And they started doing the scan and they found all sorts of uh, fluid uh, on, you know, in our daughter's body. Um, and long story short, she ended up having what was called high drops, which is a, t- a symptom of Turner syndrome. Sorry to take you through all the medical ease here, but uh, the, the long and the short of it, sin affected her body in such a way that uh, she was not able to live uh, but for about, about 10 more weeks. And so my wife and I went through the horror of every morning having to wake up to see if our daughter's heart was still beating. Uh, and that was just such a trial for us. But that was in our first year of marriage, and uh, it really aged us as a couple. And so uh, as far as just together, and I feel like the Lord just took us to the ringer during that, and uh, it really sort of joined us together and gave us an appreciation for our other three kiddos <clears throat> that we're just so grateful to have them in the house. And it takes so much courage, I think, to um, to have—I mean, to— bear the risk of a second pregnancy, like, right? So, like, there's there's so many stories woven in there that you might not even yet, you know, recognize and fully appreciate. But I, I just want to thank you that you speak to this with such um, concern and clarity and connection with your wife and in, in, in all of it. Um, and, and you do so, right, with a daddy's voice. And that is so precious and and somewhat unique in our culture. And so um, I just, <clears throat> I wanted to highlight that for our listeners because the life issue is um, is a huge issue for us and the decisions that couples make at, um, at points along the way in a pregnancy. Um, and, you know, what we're saying as Christians is it's not really our choice. Um, you know, it's, it's a person. She's a person. Um, she was mm-hmm. conceived. She lives with the Lord forever. And so I appreciate that you, you know, acknowledge that you have four kids, uh, three at home and one in heaven uh, with the Lord. And um, may your life go in such a way that all of them 
uh, reside in heaven forever. That was a conversation at our dinner table last night. We were uh, we we're in Romans um, at at church, and so <laughs> we try to be in Romans with our kids at home. And um, let's just say that there are some portions of Romans that are a little, you know, little deep, theologically deep, little, little deep water. That's true. And so uh, propitiation is a term that people are just figuring out how to say, let alone what it means. And so um, uh, conversation last night, you know, my husband just saying, like, it's what really matters to me is that all my people are going to be in heaven. You know, it's one thing to be with people here. It's another thing to to know that, you know, because I'm going to spend eternity with the Lord and I want I want you to be there, too. Um, and just to be able yeah. to say that to kids and be able to communicate that and and also to already know someone who lives there, like, right, your kids already have a sibling there. Like that's there's at some level that's really cool. Right. Great. To be exactly. able to acknowledge that. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, um, OK, let's talk. Um, let's talk briefly about the Strickland Institute, because, first of all, I'm fascinated by it. I think it is really so cool and necessary. Let's just do this. What what does a God honoring work or school environment look or feel or sound like? Yeah, that's a great question, because right now, I think what we're what we see going on in society, uh, we, we've seen this for the last maybe 30 or 40 years, uh, is, is organizations trying to do diversity training, diversity sensitivity and what have you. But there's not really a, a, a unifying motivation to do so. And so for us, what we're trying to do is give. So there's all this conversation even now, especially since the summer about, OK, we see there's a problem. What do we do about it? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of a lot of organizations are, or even people in books, are simply pointing out the problem, saying there it is. But what <laughs> we're trying to do with the Strickland Institute is say, yeah, we know it's there. But what in the world do teachers and uh, university presidents and deans and parents and you know business owners do about it? And so this is what we're trying to do is to give. Uh, people who are leaders, resources, both online resources, training of various lengths, uh, offering site surveys to begin to diagnose areas where growth is necessary. And then we're going to give you the resources to be able to go about growing in those ways through the, uh, the online resources, consulting, both virtual and in person, and also leadership retreats to be and to say, you know what, let's make our organizations uh, you know, uh, help develop them in such a way that we're able to fulfill our our missions that we've set out to uh, achieve, but doing so with all of God's children and all in every image bearer from every culture and context in mind. Yeah, I completely resonate with it and love it. When you are equipping Christians um, to think biblically about culturally sensitive topics, I mean, I just stole that right out of your description. Are there are there one or two principles or practices that you could point us to this morning, just as places where we could begin to set a hook in our minds? Yeah, I guess I guess the first place is this. I mean, we we always I mean, as Christians, we talk about how how the Bible is our foundation. Yet in this conversation about diversity, what we end up doing is baptizing secular principles and methodologies, and sort of doing them as Christians, and we ho- and we hope and pray that they're going to work. But the reality is, is that we haven't looked to the Bible, not only for the motivation first, because the Bible gives the only, I think, abiding motivation that's not derived from a flashpoint in society or feeling bad about the fact that we haven't done this well as a nation. Uh, It gives us an ongoing motivation to actually pursue this. 
But the scripture also gives us the ways in which or the methods by which we ought to pursue it as well. And so the, the, my, my thing is, is that the scripture is the, is the total package. And so what we do in all of our trainings, both retreats, uh, online trainings and what have you, in our consultings where we go live places, we actually spend a lot of time in the Bible demonstrating both of these things, the, the, the motivation and the methods. And so uh, if, you're, if you're looking at trying to figure out how to catalyze your organization, people who are professing Christians who are within it to pursue this, I mean, there's no other place to start than the Word of God. And so uh, that's, that's foundational. And in, in this current moment, in 2020, we found that politics has really been a dividing line that we've been able to address um, in a productive way by first starting with our allegiance to the kingdom of God and then talking about how we steward our votes on the back end of that. I just, I, yeah, you're like my new best friend. I know we haven't met in person, but <laughs> I am going to figure out how to fix that. Um, Walter Strickland, what a joy. I look forward to frequent conversations with you. Um, what an absolute delight. Um, thank you for letting us in a little bit into your life. It helps us to, you know, know who we're talking with. Um, thank you for what you're doing at Strickland Institute. And again, you guys can find that at strickland.institute.com. You can just find Walter directly um, on Twitter at W underscore Strickland. Um, Walter, thanks so much for joining us again today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, what in the world is going on around the world? Um, Christians are serving in places near and far. We love to talk with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News and get caught up on you know, what's happening on the front lines of ministry around the globe. I will highlight here the, uh, the news of the death of the missionary in Mali. Just continue to pray for missionaries around the world in uh, extremely hostile places, just recognizing that uh, God sends his people into darkness to be bearers of light. And oftentimes, um, you know, our very life is required of us. And so let us be mindful of that and of the sacrifice that Christians are making around the globe every day. Um, but it's a joyful sacrifice. I mean, I do, I do recognize that. So Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News, up next. I'm a big fan of listening, a huge fan. I find myself constantly coaching parents to slow down, stop using so many words, and start using their ears. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When you deliberately dial back your words and ramp up your listening, this communicates value to your team. It says to them that you care about what they truly think and feel. But there's another aspect to listening that most parents overlook. When you ask a question and wait for the answer, listen with your ears and your eyes. Make eye contact and really become a student of your teen's facial expressions and body language. Don't get discouraged if your teen doesn't want to talk. Just keep listening with your ears and your eyes. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. I was hoping so, I could get that sip of coffee swallowed before you started talking. <laughs> so when I heard your walk-up music to Boldly Go Where No Man Has Gone Before, I 
I did want to give a little shout out to NASA because that that uh, spacecraft. I don't even know how to quite pronounce its name. The Os- uh, Osiris Rex actually mm-hmm. achieved its mission yesterday. Um, and so there you go. It's apparently been orbiting an asteroid for two years, waiting for the precise moment to approach, to get close enough to reach out its robotic arm and collect two ounces of loose pebbles or dust. And it's going to take it like, I don't know, some three years to send those samples back to Earth and they're going to parachute down. Anyway, it is a very long time to court an asteroid was going to be my point. The boldly going where no one has gone before. Yesterday, NASA touched the surface of an asteroid and grabbed some dust. That's pretty cool. It is cool. It it also makes us realize the greatness of our creator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who has probably been somewhat bemused as our little craft has been orbiting a rock for a, a, a rock, not the country, but a physical rock. Spinning around in space. We've been orbiting it for two years, looking for the prime opportunity to reach, to draw close enough and then reach out a little robotic arm and grab something. Mm, Our our lives are measured out in teaspoons. I mean, right? Right? On its approach, it apparently had to dodge boulders the size of buildings. I'm telling you, we, I will say technology is kind of cool and I am a little bit in awe that this happened, but let's talk about what's going on on this, um, on this big blue ball and, um, take us, uh, maybe take us first to the situation in, uh, in Azerbaijan, um, the situation with the, uh, Armenian people who live within the borders of Azerbaijan. And we have talked about this on the program. So, you know, give us the perspective of, um, of people serving, uh, serving there. Okay, so you've already talked about this a little bit, so you don't. I don't have to go into the history and all of the the stuff that's interconnected with that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, people can go back and listen to my uh, segment long interview with Luke Moon on Friday. Awesome. On okay. The situation so on the just ground. to yep. put it into the the geographical context once more, we're in the Caucasus, where Azerbaijan has uh, Russia to the north, Georgia to the northwest, Armenia to the west. Uh, Turkey to the southwest and Iran to the the south. Um, the this little stretch of land that we're talking about is uh, the the conclave everybody the enclave everybody is fighting over. And what we're hearing, of course, is that because the the ceasefire that went into effect broke within minutes, um, uh, you, you've got people in both areas, uh, Azerbaijan and in Armenia, fleeing the the fighting. And they're crossing over different country borders and trying to find a place that takes them out of the line of fire because um, civilians have really been taking the brunt of the the destruction. Um, The artillery shelling has hit villages. People are uh, without homes. Uh, They're with, they're moving in a time when it's less than ideal to be moving because now you, you've got a winter season coming on and uh, you're you're kind of in an area that isn't prepared to receive refugees. So our partner, Slavic Gospel Association, works with local churches in both of these countries, and they're all trying to get aid to, uh, to the refugees where they land. Um, it's been a bit difficult because it's hard to get food and warmth, shelter, to uh, these refugees and the churches are doing what they can. They're opening their doors. They're receiving the refugees. People in the villages are opening their doors to receive refugees. And of course, you've got the refugee camps. Um, But people are just trying to deal with something that they were 
not prepared to uh, to receive. Um, and you think about this, this has been repeated in so many countries uh, where you've seen a refugee crisis arise uh, and nobody nobody's ever prepared for this. So let's be praying for the body of Christ in Armenia and in Azerbaijan and in this this particular area that that's being uh, fought over um, as the body of Christ is trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to people that uh, are right now facing a lot of uncertainty. Uh, nobody knows exactly when this is going to be over. The fighting has been going on since the 90s. It's been actually going on since way before that, all the way back to World War One. But um, there, you know, you're finding refugees in in places where they're not necessarily welcome. They're not necessarily in uh, like people groups even. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty there. And of course, you're watching the the larger politics and the risk of proxy wars and the risk of uh, regional conflict. And so there's there's a lot of uncertainty. Pray for the, the church leaders because they're trying to lead congregations in the midst of all of this. And they're trying to be wise in how they do that and point people back to the hope that is Jesus Christ, preach the gospel and nurture the congregations that they have, all at the same time uh, reaching out to a whole other people group that uh, maybe has never been exposed to the gospel before. That's a lot to put on uh, on pastors and church leaders. So pray that you know they're ready to do this. Um, uh, this is kind of why SGA works with the local church to resource them and to try to train them and and have them prepared for you know times such as this. Um, and at this at this stage. They are asking, SGA is asking for us not only to pray, but also to find a way to enable them to support the churches in Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of other difficulties. So pray wisdom for mm -hmm. the, the country leaders, because now you're talking Turkey and Iran and Russia, and, and those are not easy places either. Um, we've been praying a lot about those kinds of situations, uh, and it seems like you're going to have yet another impasse. So be praying for wisdom, um, be praying for God's fingerprints to show up mightily in this situation. Ruth, let's just pause and do that right now. Um, God, we come before you as sisters in Christ, along with so many thousands and thousands of others, praying right now for our Christian brothers and sisters um, in Azerbaijan uh, and in surrounding uh, countries to which people are now fleeing. Uh, the ongoing uh, fighting there. And so we do want to lift up churches in the region, um, not only prepare them to receive these people who are fleeing, but Father, give them uh, the wisdom and the resources necessary uh, to to do so in a way that honors you and or glorifies you and honors the humanity of uh, of others. We lift all of this up to you in the name of Jesus. Um, I'm talking with Ruth Kramer. You can find what we're talking about at missionnews.org. Um, Ruth, let's uh, let's talk about Tajikistan, which I feel like every time I talk with you, there's a there's a linguistic opportunity for me to develop my skills. I don't say <laughs> Tajikistan very often, or Armenia, or Azerbaijan. No, I've really? gotten really good at Azerbaijan. I've gotten good at that one. Yeah. <laughs> I even know how to spell it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tajikistan is is struggling, uh, like so many countries are right now. Uh, Tajikistan is in the former Soviet Union, and it's one of the poorest countries in that former Soviet bloc. Um, mm -hmm. The the services that are available uh, to the to its people are. Uh, somewhat limited because of how poor the country is, and so we're, what we're looking at right now is just that whole 
I don't know, avalanche of stuff that's happening with um, the pandemic, with the economic situation that was already existing in that country before that, the pandemic worsening things, and the isolation that comes with this. When you look at Tajikistan, um, it, it sometimes feels a little bit... Um, cut off from the modern world because there are still a lot of things like arranged marriages going on uh, and and young women getting married into into families. Uh, and and there's a lot of um, spousal abuse uh, that is that exists. Domestic abuse exists in Tajikistan that is pretty severe, uh, along with a lot of the other issues that that kind of come with being um, all the challenges that I've already outlined. And so you have a country without a mental health program. You have women who are in these situations uh, kind of trapped in relationships that have gotten very ugly in the lockdowns. And now you have anxiety and depression and, and suicide uh, that are also becoming a national crisis. I think one of the things that we we noticed is that the uh, the national health crisis in Tajikistan has come to the forefront because of the um, the high amounts of suicides that are particularly being found about, uh, among young women between 18 and 40 years old. Um, before 2020 occurred, uh, the studies that I think that we saw going into um, this last decade were indicating that um, maybe 45% of the cases of, of suicide attempts were carried out by married women who were experiencing mm. um, severe cases of domestic abuse. Um, so when you you kind of add that into all of the other mix, it's a very difficult situation that uh, that's facing Tajikistan's women. So Sat7 is a satellite uh, broadcast ministry to the Middle East and North Africa. They launched a new program in Tajikistan called Mental and Spiritual Health, and it was really geared to answer this crisis that they were seeing that was emerging in that country. Um, that's being featured on their Farsi-speaking uh, Farsi channel, uh, Sat7 PARS. And really what it, it was developed to do was to kind of give people a, a platform to um, address some of their, their issues and to provide them with some guidance. So you have mental health experts as well as Christian leaders who are talking about the issues, who are answering questions from the audience that they're really targeting and um, introducing the hope of Jesus Christ in a very difficult situation. There's a huge stigma around the issue of mental health. It's almost taboo to talk about struggles. So this is just really kind of um, um, reaching into ground that nobody's done before in Tajikistan. And uh, they're really praying that it's going to reach the people that uh, in a timely fashion reach the women in a timely fashion to intervene uh, in a crisis before it becomes something where you've lost someone and, and mm -hmm. also, you know, introduce them to something other than what they they've ever been exposed to uh, in terms of their 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 dynamic uh, probably will not have exposed a lot of women to to the gospel. So, you know, how that changes things, that transforms people from the inside out. And so they're praying, they're asking us to pray with them that this lands on fertile soil. Amen. Um, Ruth, you and I need to take a very brief break. When we come back, let's talk about the ongoing uh, challenge and, and struggle of the Yazidi population in Iraq. That conversation up next with Ruth Kramer. You can find what we're talking about today at missionnews.org.
continuing my conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find the links to the articles we're talking about today at missionnews.org. Uh, Ruth, I um, I was stopped at a gas station over the weekend, and uh, while I was pumping my gas, there was a literal gaggle of girls, like little little stair steps, um, from probably like mid-teen all the way down to three, and there were six of them, and they were kind of huddled around the driver's door of the minivan that was on the other side of the uh, gas pump, and these six girls were all simultaneously talking in a language I couldn't understand to the mother who was sitting behind the wheel. She looked very placid, but she was completely ignoring them. And I uh, finally decided, this is a woman I want to meet. And so I just caught her eye at one point, and I said, do you speak English? And she got a broad smile across her face, and she said yes. And I said, it seems as if they are all trying to convince you of something. It looks like you're raising a whole uh, you know, a whole group of, um, of negotiators. And she smiled broadly, and she said, Yes, and if they would speak the language of their country instead of the language of their origin, they might get what they want. At which point in time, the oldest of the girls stopped and and said, could we each have an ice cream? (laughs) And the mom, and so I share with you this because they're Kurdish. And they're okay. now living here in Tennessee, and uh, and they're speaking Kurdish, and she wants them to speak English. And I was just impressed that, you know, they know a language that I don't know because I still find that incredibly impressive. This woman was one of the translators um, for the U.S. military while we were uh, very busy in Iraq, and she and her family now live here in uh, in Tennessee, in the United States. They've been here for eight years. So anyway, this I tee up for our conversation about what's going on in Iraq today. So bring us up to speed. Well, we're talking about the Yazidis. So if you remember, that's the the people group that's been finally labeled a genocide because of what happened with ISIS when ISIS rolled through Iraq and Syria in 2014. Um, and uh, you've had the Yazidis pretty much scattered to the wind because it's Mm -hmm. really not been safe for them to be anywhere. They are the victims of ethnic cleansing uh, and a genocide. Um, So it's it's been a question mark as to whether or not they were ever going to be able to go home. And based on what we're hearing from uh, a peace agreement that was inked October 9th, the hope is that they're going to be able to begin returning home. So there's been an agreement between the Iraqi government and the Kurdish government that would allow for some stability and control for the first time since ISIS rolled through. That sounds great. And it's super, super complicated. It draws in like Iraq, Iran, and, and Turkey. I'm not going to get into that because it was something it – was, it was like a ball of, of – no, it yarn. wasn't a ball. It was, it was a <laughs> knot of yarn <laughs> that we were trying to un, you know, figure out which thread went which, with which thing. Um, so the, the whole idea here is that the agreement's going to – try to rid northern Iraq of the Turkish forces, that they're going to withdraw and allow other things to to occur. It's, it's very complex. Um, and and while, you know, a lot of the Yazidi are excited about it, there are still some in the community who reject it because it, it deals with some other issues that are um, haven't been answered and, and probably are not going to be easily answered. Um, when we're looking at all of that, you're looking at a people group who's been kind of put into a diaspora. And so the question became, how do we reach the Yazidi with the hope of Christ? And our friends from Redemptive Stories found that um, just having equipped the body of Christ that remained in Iraq and Syria and 
uh, and Turkey uh, to do the job of being gospel workers was what was necessary to have an impact, a gospel impact on the Yazidi. So hmm. what we're hearing now is that as the refugees came through their communities, the body of Christ was the hand, were the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in meeting some of those needs and working through helping those Yazidi work through the trauma of what had happened to them. And people started turning to Jesus Christ. So what we're hearing from Samuel from Redemptive Stories is that the Yazidi have begun coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They are being discipled. They are planting churches. Um, they are really having to change a lot of different things because um, the Yazidi identity is something entirely different. They're a religious minority in Iraq. They kind of incorporate Islam and Christianity and other bits of other religions together. So by becoming followers of Jesus, they're also losing some of that Yazidi identity. Um, mm -hmm. And there's just some some dissonance that occurs with that. And so, you know, redemptive stories is just saying these are baby Christians that are heading back. So pray that churches can be planted. Pray that their faith takes root. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff that's yet to be worked out with whether or not this peace agreement is going to hold. Uh, there's, you know, what what are they going back to? Nobody really knows if they're, if it's going to be everything's destroyed and they got to start over again, or if um, you're going to have a door open for other insurgents. Um, and then, you know, on the other end of it, now that they're followers of Christ, what is their identity? Can right. they find their true identity in Jesus Christ while also um, <clears throat> socially not being Right. Are they still like, are they still Yazidi? Will they be received by their own people as if they're exactly. still a part of that community? Yeah, it's huge. That in English. Yeah. Um, Ruth, um, you and I have to uh, have to leave it there. But let me encourage people to check out um, what is posted at missionnews.org. There's an update there about China AIDS. Bob Fu, if you haven't seen that yet, it's really important. Um, Bible translation challenges in Nigeria that are absolutely worth our attention. Um, and then the pandemic issues that people are facing around the world. So let's be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ on the forefront of all of this. Ruth, as always, thank you for bringing it to us. Hey, thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Stick around. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.